0: This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. First, just a couple minutes of housekeeping. First of all, I'm very excited about this episode. um, And it's an opportunity to just sort of update you with what I wanted to do with the Untimely Reflections conversational episodes. You may have noticed I've been releasing those on Friday. I'm coming out with this one today on Tuesday because I'm very excited for you to hear it. And it also gives me a break from do- producing another episode this week. Um, but we've got some very exciting things coming up in the like lecture series episodes. So no worries on that. And we'll start again next week. But that is what I want to keep doing uh, going forward is that there will be an untimely, untimely reflections as a bonus episode um, you know, every other Friday, um, sometimes maybe there might be a gap of two weeks in there, but I've actually been, see, I, 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 initially thought I would have trouble finding guests, um, because I only know so many people that I would actually want to have on the podcast or I've only met so many online. Um, and you know, there's only so many things you can talk about, right? But that hasn't turned out to be a problem. It seems like there are a lot of people who want to be on and a lot of things to talk about so it'll probably keep roughly to the schedule of once every two weeks and it'll be an additional episode in addition to the lecture series except on times like today when i'm taking a break because today is actually my birthday on the as of the time of when i'm recording this and the release of this conversation um and so i you know there's nothing i'd rather do than engage in intellectual pursuits on my birthday because that's Um, In a lot of ways, uh, it's recreation as well as work. So, um, But anyway, we're going to have one more episode concluding the Schopenhauer saga of the past month or so that we've been doing. I'm, of course, planning a Christmas special. I'll let you all guess and speculate as to what that might entail. And I'm planning on having on more academics because it was such a pleasure to talk to Paul. I'm going to throw a poll onto this episode um, for the Spotify listeners, and you can use that to let me know what you think of Untimely Reflections so far, and um, yeah, give me some feedback. Without further ado, please enjoy our conversation about Nietzschean constitutivism. There, I finally said the word right, uh, which you'll learn in the episode I have some trouble with. All right, here it is, Untimely Reflections number seven. Okay, I am here today with Professor Paul Katzelfanis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. And uh, he's a professor at Boston. And uh, how is the weather in Boston at the moment?
1: It's cold today. Um, we oh. had a nice fall up till now, but now we're down into the 30s, so.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. I imagine it gets pretty brutal up there.
1: Uh, it does, yeah, yeah. There can be a lot of snow, and cold weather in the winter.
0: It's like 80 degrees here in Austin so um oh nice yeah it's it's very nice but um well thank you very much for for coming on i wanted to talk to you because i had uh, seen or heard you on another podcast uh called culture insight and then i looked into some of your um work and it is very fascinating to me um how it almost seems like uh you are approaching a very uh, a continental philosopher who is uh, has a reputation for being very poetic, lyrical almost. And yet uh, it seems you're coming through the analytical tradition. Would you say that's correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, I'm definitely taking a more analytical approach to Nietzsche.
0: How do you feel about the continental analytical split? Do you think it's becoming, is it just as relevant as it has been in the past or is it becoming less so?
1: Yeah, I think it's become a lot less relevant. So I think if you go back uh, 30 years or so, there was real conflict between those two sides. Uh, People on either side wouldn't really talk to one another very much. Um, the the figures that people on the continental side were addressing were very different than the figures that the people on the analytic side were addressing, um, as well as the issues that concerned uh, those people. So the analytic philosophers and the continental philosophers worked on different topics, really. But I, I think in the past couple of decades that split has acquired much less importance. Um, now I think there are a bunch of analytically inclined. Uh, Nietzsche scholars, for example, and not just on uh, really in a number of areas that were formerly just the province of uh, continental philosophy. A number of analytic figures have been doing really good, interesting work on them. So um, yeah, I mean, I talk to people on both sides of that divide to the extent that it exists anymore and um, find that there's a lot more openness than what I've been told existed 20, 30 years ago.
0: Right. Well, and I'm also thinking of, I mean, it, it goes back more than a century with Bertrand Russell giving Nietzsche a very icy sort of, um, you know, look in, in his uh, book on the history of philosophy. But um, I guess before we get into the nitty gritty on that, would, would you mind just telling us a little about yourself and what your path through philosophy has been like so far?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I got interested in philosophy during college. So I, I actually never really read any philosophy in high school and didn't really know what it was, but I just randomly decided to take a philosophy course during my freshman year of college and found it incredibly interesting. It was just a course on ancient Greek philosophy, so that was my my first um, encounter with philosophy, really. But I just found the um, the ability to address questions of fundamental importance in these fascinating and insightful ways. I just found it so rewarding to uh, to delve into that. So I kept taking more and more courses in college, eventually ended up majoring in it. And then as the end of college was approaching, I thought I'd give graduate school a shot. I mean, I, I was loving the, the work that I was doing in philosophy. Um, so I applied to some graduate programs. I ended up going to Harvard for uh, graduate school. And there, when I first came to graduate school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to work on. Actually, I, I liked a lot of different areas of philosophy and In graduate school, you need to pick a particular thing to write your dissertation on. Um, I ended up writing mine on a topic that's similar to the one that my first book turned out to be about. So um, there's some recent work in contemporary ethical theory where people think about what might justify the various claims about values that people make. So if I say that something's good or bad or right or wrong, you can of course ask what that's based on. if it's based on anything more than my own opinion or, or some sort of projection of uh, my feelings about the matter. Um, anyway, there's there's one tradition that thinks that by looking at facts about the structure of human agency, uh, so what motivates us, what we're directed toward, that you might somehow be able to think about um, what legitimate and illegitimate sets of ethical claims would look like. So I wrote my, top, my uh, dissertation on that general topic, and I found Nietzsche incredibly insightful on on those points, in part because his understanding of agency, um, how it is that we act, uh, the role of the unconscious in acting is just so much richer and so much deeper than a lot of the other philosophical work that I've encountered. And I I think it hasn't really been appreciated by people working on contemporary ethics. So I found that a a good field to dig into. So I I wrote my dissertation on that. And yeah, from there, um, I guess after graduate school, my first job was actually at the the University of New Mexico. So I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico for two years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have some family Um, there. I I love it. Oh, cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it there. Um, It's a beautiful area. I mean, I I did a lot of hiking and uh, biking and stuff. And it's it's 6,000 feet.
0: So it's actually higher up than Denver, the mile high city. So yeah. 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 It's nice. Yeah, it takes a bit um, of getting used. So so what you're describing um, is that that's what's generally known as constant constitutivism, right? Um, Yes. And that's the, could you give it like an, uh, I know you kind of did give an outline of that, but um, I guess Mm -hmm. to to just jump right into it, from what I understand, the main people um, or the main philosophical figures who were pushing this idea of constitutivism before uh, your work were Kantians, is that correct to say?
1: That's correct. Yeah, Uh, so Kant has an argument where he tries to show that what it is to act freely is essentially the same as what it is to act morally. So in other words, uh, he tries to justify certain moral claims by saying that uh, if you aim to act freely, And really, if you just aim to act at all, you'll be committed to those sorts of claims. So what seems to be going on there is that Kant is trying to articulate something about the structure of free agency, what it is to act freely. And he thinks that when you really understand what it is to act freely, you see that there's an equivalence between acting freely and acting morally. Um, so, So in the in general, what seems to be going on there is that he's looking at the structure of action and trying to argue that properly understood, you can derive some normative conclusions from it.
0: And that's with, with the Kantian tradition, that's based on the way I've heard it explained is uh, being a coherent being, so to speak, of acting that's in a right. rational way so that your the principles upon which you act are not self-contradictory or unreasonable.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's okay. it. So he and thinks that, that um, oh, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Oh, no, you can, you can go on.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, so Kant's basic argument is that any way of acting that's non-contradictory is going to turn out to be a, a type of free action, and that's going to turn out to be a type of moral action. So he's, he's especially interested in the idea that he thinks that if I try to will things, or to put that in more contemporary terminology, if I try to do something, if I intend to do something, and if it turns out that my intention uh, cannot be coherently universalized in the sense that it wouldn't make sense or wouldn't be possible for everyone to exhibit that intention, then Kant thinks that that entails that my intention is contradictory. Um, And he thinks he can extract some some ethical conclusions from it. I mean, the, the argument is very controversial. I personally don't think that it works, but um, but there have been generations of commentators on Kant who try to figure out right. exactly how that argument's supposed to go.
0: Right. And so it's and it's Veleman, David Veleman, and Christine Korsgaard, who are yeah. the, the main figures who are um, working off of Kant's work to um, put forward this idea of a a Kantian moral framework that then is explained through constitutivism. Um, And I guess, I know you criticize uh, or you kind of critique their arguments in uh, your book or one of your books, Um, I guess maybe I can, this is sort of an open-ended question. What do you think, what is your uh, appeal to Nietzsche and his ideas? What problem does that solve that you think was maybe lacking with uh, Korsgaard and Velleman?
1: Uh, So I think the problem with both of their theories is, well, I mean, in short, that neither of them actually work. So so Skard's theory is very close to Kant's. She basically thinks that Kant is right. And she tries to give a new presentation of Kant's argument that makes it more explicitly linked to analyzing constitutive features of agency. But it's basically just Kant's argument. Um, Now, I think, and a lot of other people think as well, that there, there's a flaw in Kant's argument. Um, the basic flaw is that you might think that you can't really get much content out of the formula that Kant associates with uh, free or rational agency. So he, it's basically what you were alluding to earlier. He thinks that you have to think about whether your intention can be universalized. Um, hmm. And he basically thinks that any Actions that count as immoral are going to be the ones that can't be universalized. That gets into a lot of trouble. Like, I mean, it—it it seems like there are lots of actions that cannot be universalized, but that are perfectly fine morally speaking, and vice versa. Could you, could you give like an example of one? Oh, sure. So, like, um, so it seems like any action um, that depends for achieving its aim on not everyone doing that type of action will oh, be ruled out by blood formula. So let me give you an example. So if I say that um, my intention is to drive to the center of Boston at, at 5 p.m. tomorrow, um, I can do that. That seems perfectly fine, right? Now, if, if I think about everyone doing that, it won't work, right? Not every car can fit, and that's a pretty car.
0: commonplace yeah. in Boston. <laughs> well, that's true. Sure,
1: right? <laughs> um, so, so we can so. see real, real analysis, of that. <laughs> right? But um, yeah. But I mean, the problem is that it seems like there are a lot of actions like that where, I mean, they depend mm-hmm. for their efficacy on not everyone doing them. But there's nothing. I'm wrong thinking wrong
0: with of them. the prisoner's dilemma here, actually. Yeah. As well. Um, yeah. So
1: that. Or, a, or just any
0: is. sort of um, situation where you have like I'm thinking of another, um, you know, uh, everyone hoarding toilet paper or people hoarding exactly. supplies, the supply chain. Now, I'm not advocating that anyone go out and hoard things, but I could imagine a situation like like if you received information from the future that, you know, for a fact, um, there's going to be no food on the shelves next week. Let's say you have a friend who works for the government and somehow, you know, this Um Is it morally justified for you to go and stock everything up for your family? Um, Well, if everyone behaves that way, all of a sudden you've created an effect where nobody's going to be able to, or, you know, so I, I don't know, I, that doesn't, I don't know if that proves any case because I'm the, that's a morally ambiguous situation there, Mm -hmm. but I guess, uh, it, it does, you have, you have successfully teased out for me how in many cases where you have, um, Dilemmas like that, universalizing an action may not be the best way to determine the right way to act.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kant's examples are a little strange. So, like, he has an example of um, promising, basically. So, um, one of his examples where he tries to illustrate this universalization problem, it goes like this: he says, um, Can I make a false promise to repay money? So, you know, I tell somebody, Give me five. Dollars, I'll pay you back in a month. But I intend not. It's immoral to break your promise in that way. It's supposed to fail the universal universalization test because Kant reasons: if everyone always makes false promises to pay back money, then nobody's going to lend money on the basis of promises, right? So the the institution of promising depends on most people respecting it. Um, so he has in mind cases like that where um, certain actions that we might regard as immoral seem to depend on people cooperating in certain ways or, or not making ex- exceptions of themselves. And, nice. and his theory can do okay with some of those cases. It's just that um, it also seems to rule a lot of perfectly fine cases to be immoral and, and you know, vice versa as well. A lot of um, immoral ones, if you describe them in certain ways might look fine. Um, Did, do you, do you,
0: does an example come to mind f- for that?
1: Oh yeah. So like um, a big problem with Kant's theory is basically he thinks that when we're assessing whether something is moral or immoral, we look at the intention of the person who's doing it. Kant mm-hmm. calls it the maxim, but he basically means the the intention of the person. Um, so you look at what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. And the problem is that you can describe intentions at different levels of specificity. Right. And it seems like the results that Kant gets depend on precisely how you state the intention. So like, if I say, um, I'm going to, um, we'll go back to the promise example. Like if I say, I'm going to make a false promise to pay somebody back when I don't really intend to do so just because I, I want the money, um, then maybe Kant's argument works because if everybody, whenever they want money, um, just makes a false promise, then, you know, the, the whole Institution of lending money on the basis of promises might collapse. But what if my intention is much more specific? Like, what if I just say, okay, on this one occasion in the year 2021, I intend to, you know, make this false promise to Bob to, you know. So then, I mean, if you universalize that, maybe this one poor guy in 2021 is going to stop. Promising, but it doesn't look like promising as such. It's going to collapse or anything like that. So that would be a, a case where um, by rediscuing your action in a certain way, it might look like Kant can no longer say that it's immoral, right. or, 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 or we, we could, could say even any very specific one.
0: Right. You know, uh, I was just going to interject quickly. We could even say in a situation where um, you know it's always more immoral to lie. But what if you're an intelligence agent captured during World War II? Um yeah. you know, and things of that nature where you might say, Well, that's not an ordinary circumstance that you would find yourself in. But that's I guess kind of the point that uh Kant's uh um moral ideology seems to work in those uh very general general cases, but it those extreme limit cases, um, it breaks down a little bit, I I think right. for a lot of us. Yeah. Which especially because in ethics, a lot of the time we're we're checking our ethical conclusions against what feels correct at the end of the day. Um, you know, uh, because I've heard more than one person just, you know, say, well, if the ethical theory ends up with you're eating babies at the end, um, you know, you, something deep down tells you the logic here doesn't work. And so I right. think that's, that's what makes a lot of people skeptical about Kant because there's of course the famous case of, do you lie, um, to protect somebody when they're, you know, a murderer is looking for him or something like that. Um, that's, it, it's it's uh it's almost a a justified uh rejection based on intuition um so um so i guess to get into to nietzsche's uh, or your nietzschean constitutivism which i think is uh i don't know why i'm having so much trouble saying that word um it is it's a tough it one yeah. too many t's um yeah. it, i guess this is the perfect time to bring in in nietzsche because uh yeah. you you would say that uh there's a different um constituent makeup of our actions than the exactly.
1: content account. Yeah, so, I mean, one way of looking at it is as a matter of interpreting what Nietzsche says in the text and another way of looking at it is just solving this ethical problem that we might want some kind of foundation for an ethical theory. So to start with a text-based point, um, so Nietzsche is always evaluating things in his texts, right? So he will vehemently condemn Christianity or democracy or the drive for equality. You will know, he'll, he'll rank all sorts of people um, complaining about Wagner or whoever, right? Um, and then he'll praise others. So he'll praise Napoleon or Goethe or, or these others. Um, he'll praise the, the sort of forms of life that were present in ancient Greece sometimes. Um, so there's a question about what he's doing there. Like what's the, is there some principle that he's employing when he makes these judgments about what's good or what's bad, what's worthy of praise and what's worthy of condemnation. And I think at least in his later texts, it becomes increasingly clear that there is. Um, So he'll often describe it in terms of life or health, but most generally, I think he's interested in this principle of will to power that he's trying to articulate in some of his last works. Um, So will to power He often describes it as a kind of standard that you can bring to bear to evaluate other persons or cultures or moralities. So it seems to be operating in a way that's somewhat analogous to other ethical principles. It's a distinctive one, but it seems to be playing that sort of role. Um, But then, so there are a couple of questions about it. One is just, what is it? So what is will to power? But uh, another question is, um, why does Nietzsche think that will to power is important? Why does he think that that's what we should base these judgments of praise and condemnation on? And um, I think what he's doing there is he's trying to argue that if you look at the structure of action, he'll often say the structure of willing, um, then you find that it has a, a certain kind of constitution. It, it it has certain features that he thinks are always going to be present, um, namely this sort of drive toward power. And I, I think what he's trying to do is show that because action or willing always exhibits that structure, we can think about um, forms of life or forms of society or particular individuals who generate conflicts with that structure. Um, and that that, at, you know, in a, in a very abstract way, that's what Nietzsche is doing when he evaluates and praises and so when he end. talks
0: about like a sickness or health of a culture. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, so he's not, or of a, so, sorry, go on.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, so he talks about sickness and health, it's clear that he has something special in mind there. Right? He says that Christianity makes us sick, but um, he doesn't mean that it, it makes us catch pneumonia or something like that, right? So okay. sickness and health, there's something, philosophically rich going on there. And I think that when he analyzes those notions of sickness and health, what he always comes back to is this talk of will to power. So the healthy individual is going to be one who basically who grows in power over time. Mm-hmm. The the sickly individual is going to be undermining power in some way, or is going to mm-hmm. have some kind of conflict within themselves, within their actions. Um, right. Well, so and, yeah, and
0: he, uh, I, I was just going to, to, to jump in really quick. It's, it, it's yeah. interesting. He often talks about it of like being a divided nature is sort of a yeah. sick nature. And it reminded me with what you're saying, if that's, if will to power is this con- constituent part of all action. Um, and then which, which requires you value will to power in order to act, but then you're acting against will to power. It's sort of in inherent division that you're creating there or you're aimed yeah, against your own exactly. aims.
1: Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. Like, I think that's the basic way in which Nietzsche objects to Christianity, to democracy, to, you know, to all the things he is opposed to. He thinks that they generate these pervasive conflicts between our drive toward power and then whatever else we're disposed toward, like compassion or equality or democracy or whatever it may be.
0: Mm. So, and so I guess to to then pick up their, um, how does that differ with the Kantian account? Is it in, or yeah. what would you say, is there like some essential difference or way of contrasting them?
1: Yeah, there are a couple. So um, so one is just that the, the feature that's said to be constitutive of action is very different in the two cases, right? So for Nietzsche, it's will to power. Kant doesn't recognize anything like that for Kant, it's something like an aspiration to universality or to rationality. Mm-hmm. So there's that difference. Um, there's also, I think, a difference in what Nietzsche and Kant envision their theories doing. So Kant thinks that his theory basically justifies ordinary morality. So, you know, so Kant writes this book, uh, the Metaphysics of Morals, and he basically argues that um, with a few exceptions, he sees his theory as supporting Christian moral intuitions, like the the sort of intuitions that would be dominant in a Christian society, basically. Um, He thinks he gets all of that out of this moral principle. Nietzsche, of course, is very different. He's very revisionary. So he thinks that um, will to power, if properly understood, would undermine a lot of our most dominant values, right? So he thinks that Christianity, equality, ideas of human dignity, compassion, things like this are all to some extent in conflict with will to power. So the theories is gonna have very different implications. Um, also, I think the, um, there are a couple of other differences. So um, I think Nietzsche's account fits much better with a, a richer psychological picture that emphasizes the role of unconscious motivation. Um, so Kant is primarily focused on deliberation, really. He thinks about self-conscious people explicitly thinking about what they should do and weighing one action against another and so forth. But you know, very little of our act takes that form. I mean, it's once in a while we, we sort of stand back and think self-consciously about whether we have more reason to do this or that. But most of the time we act much more habitually and automatically than that. Right. And I think Nietzsche is much more attuned to, to that dynamic and his theory fits much better with it.
0: That, that um, I was hoping you would go there because that to me has always been one of the most fascinating elements of Nietzsche. Um, there's the passage in uh, the Spokes um, the one, the despisers of the body, where he says that the, the body's drives are the leading string of consciousness's notions. Um, and basically talks about um, how so much of our motives are unconscious. And then uh, the the motivation is he calls it like the the superficial skin over uh, our motivations, and that to me has always seemed like a um, you know it's a di- it's a, one of Nietzsche's dynamite ideas because obviously uh, from that we we get I think you can make a reasonable case that you get a lot of the inspiration for Freud and uh, yeah. the psychoanalytic school and this um, whole world of um, you know scary unconscious drives and motivations. Um, but I suppose this is where I think it gets interesting for me because from what I understand, constitutive ethics are, um, would be sort of in normative ethics. Is that correct? You'd yeah. say you're deriving, um, you're not just describing the way that people behave. You're, you're, you're coming to some, uh, would you would you say it's fair to say a prescription of action or would you not put it in those terms
1: so I, I think it differently so so what kant for example thinks that his theory is going to do is it's going to sort of tell you which particular actions are permissible morally mm. speaking and which aren't i don't so think rules based right yeah, so, yeah yeah that's right i, I don't think that nietzsche um, is trying to do that really so I don't think that Nietzsche envisions people thinking about will to power and deciding whether to perform particular actions on that basis. He seems to be much more interested in these more global assessments of people's character, of certain cultural phenomena, of like deep seated values. So I, I do think he thinks it's prescriptive in the sense that you engage in these critiques of dominant values and of like cultural norms and so forth. And that would definitely impact your actions if you're convinced by it, but it wouldn't be impacting it because like at each moment you'd be standing back and deliberating about whether, you know, one action is more in conformity with power or another. It would rather be something that could happen more organically as a result of your um, coming to accept different kinds of values or different kinds of norms. Okay,
0: I guess where I'm kind of trying to get to um, mm. with um, just this line of questions is I just have this inkling that in normative mm. ethics, um, it's sort of the coin of the realm to have derive some ought, if you know what yeah. I'm saying. And yeah. I, I guess I'm wondering: it, it is there some sort of inherent difficulty in the idea that if this is some, if action is something that is more habitual and more unconscious mm. than maybe? we like to give her unconscious credit for, um, does that present a problem for, I guess, for practical ethics, uh, stemming from um, some sort of constitutivist theory?
1: Yeah, so I don't think it is a problem. So I, I think if, um, okay. so if I were saying that Nietzsche is trying to be like Kant, for example, if, if I were saying that Nietzsche is trying to develop this ethical theory where you know, it's supposed to be applicable when we engage in self-conscious deliberation and um, explicitly think about what to do and so forth, then that would definitely conflict with Nietzsche's theories about action. But I see it as operating very differently. So maybe an example would help, like imagine um, imagine somebody who like grows up in a, in a deeply religious context and internalizes, uh, let's say, pretty fundamentalist values. So they think that um, like premarital sex is sinful and things like this, right? Um, and then that structures their day-to-day actions, right? Even when they're not deliberating about it, that will influence how they interact with other people, what they're attracted to, what they feel guilty about, stuff like that. But then imagine um, at a certain point, they come to reject those values. They, like, they think about whether they have good reason for accepting them or whether they believe in God or something like that. And they come to reject the religion, um, and then we think about what happens, like you know, a year or so after that. the The person might not be explicitly thinking about values or reasons or or principles or anything like that, but they're going to engage with the world very differently, right? Like the the situations that formerly would have produced guilt and shame and stuff like that, maybe they no longer will. The things they're attracted to might be very different. Um, the actions that they perform might be very different, not because they're sort of. Self-consciously taking that into account, but because of some of the unconscious motivations and drives and so forth have been reconfigured because of the, the mm-hmm. change of values. So I, I think that Nietzsche is, is looking for something like that. He thinks that um, you know, we could we could think about will to power, we can think about problems that he thinks arise with a lot of the values that we accept. And then if we really take that seriously and critique these values and actually change the values, then All of that might happen self-consciously. All of that might happen while you're like reading Nietzsche's books and reflecting on philosophy and stuff like that. But um, what he's really hoping for is something to come out of that. He's hoping for that to change your day-to-day interactions and our culture's day-to-day interactions. And that's where the, um, the change in our unconscious emotions and drives and motivations and so forth would come into play.
0: That's interesting. So it's it's almost that uh, we have a shift in perspective that has a an a gradual effect in changing us on the habitual level level. Um, That's right. Have you have you are you familiar with Richard uh, Rorty? Um, Yeah, uh, I I believe it was just uh, two divisions where he talked about constructive versus therapeutic. Philosophy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess just for the audience, constructive would be you're building systems, answering logical problems, philosophical problems. Therapeutic is, um, you know, well, traditionally, a lot of people would say perhaps Nietzsche fits into this. Um, you are uh, resolving contradictions within yourself, or you are doing something that is more to, um, for, I mean, in quite a literal therapeutic sense for to for self-healing or something like that. I'm wondering where you would think this view fits into that or, or which camp this would be.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both actually, because I think hmm. it's definitely therapeutic in the sense that what Nietzsche is really interested in is transforming culture and transforming individuals, right? He thinks that our culture is sick, that it's unhealthy, that our values are deeply problematic. And he wants that to change. He's really hoping that it will change. Um, but the way, or at least one of the ways that he um, tries to do that, tries to get that change to happen, is by constructing theories, right? He thinks that we've been so gripped by the dominant values and cultural beliefs and religions and you know political movements and so forth, that we just don't see how how sick these things are, how unhealthy they are. And to uncover that, you need a certain kind of theoretical construction. You need genealogies, you need analyses of health and power and, and so forth. So I, I think it's a mixture of the two actually.
0: that's that's interesting. and, it, and this kind of ties into I, I, I'm glad you've you've put it in that light because there's another sort of um, Dismissive way of looking at Nietzsche, where people will, will see him as an irrationalist or yeah. um, completely rejecting the truth. Um, and I think it's important always to point out, um, you know, there's the famous letter to his sister where he said, "If you want to, if you want happiness uh, and peace of the soul, then believe. If you want to be a disciple of truth, then inquire." Um, okay. And it, so it's it's fascinating that. Uh, you're, you're kind of ending up in a place where Nietzsche really is sort of in a way relying on intellect or, or hoping other people will see the truth or come to a truer perspective, which is not a way we normally hear Nietzsche's philosophy talked about. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that's right. But I, I think if you look at the text, I mean, Nietzsche is giving arguments and analyses. He's doing it in a very revisionary way. So it doesn't look like standard philosophy, but if you read his books, they're they're full of insightful observations and um, critiques and points and philosophical claims. And it can be hard. I mean, they're not systematic in the way that some other philosophers right. are, right? So you can't just um, dip into them and see exactly where he's going and what the argument is supposed to be. And so it, t- it takes a lot of work. Um, but nonetheless, I, I do think there is a critique that's going on there. And, you know, he's sometimes quite explicit about that. So he says that Zarathustra's highest value is truth, for example, um, he, um, he seems very, I mean, he, he's critical about the value that we ordinarily place upon truthfulness, but he does himself seem to be motivated by this um, desire to uncover truths about various phenomena.
0: Yeah. There's that passage, uh, another one that comes to mind in beyond good and evil, where he says he can imagine maybe one day the strength of a spirit we measured and how much truth it can endure. Yeah. And so, you know, it, there's a lot of ways to read that, but it definitely seems like it's not a rejection of truth. It's an acknowledgement of the the potential uh, harmfulness of truth or, or that you might need to be tough to deal with the truth um, in, yeah. a, in a certain sense. Um. So I guess then the next the next uh, question I would have would be concerning free will then, um, which I know is a hairy subject, but yeah. um, uh, where do you see Nietzsche's position on free will and how does that fit into um, Nietzschean constitutivism?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of different conceptions of free will and that Nietzsche rejects some of them, but he's also interested in, one of the conceptions mm-hmm. so um, so sometimes free will is associated with the idea of whether a person could have done something other than what they actually do so um, there are a lot of debates that set the problem up that way and often those debates will be put in terms of whether my past states determine what I'm doing now because it seems like you know for most objects in the universe if we know all the causes we can, in theory, at least predict the outcome. Um, I just want to say
0: really quick, I am guilty as charged of framing that issue that way on this very podcast, just for anyone who's listened in the past. So. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I mean,
1: that, that is what, like a—I mean, hundreds of years of philosophical tradition pose it that way, right? About whether we could have done otherwise, about whether our past determines our, our present and future, um, about whether what, comes after is determined by what comes before, basically. Um, I think Nietzsche is not particularly interested in that just because he thinks it's mm-hmm. obvious that the past does determine the, the future, right? So he's he thinks that um, there are theories, he thinks they're ludicrous that posit um, sort of causally undetermined acts of choice. So oh, right. there are some theories, philosophers, who try to argue that you know when I make a decision, it's totally unconstrained by any past causes and so forth. And Nietzsche just thinks, no, it's, you know, you'll be influenced by your drives, your emotions, your motives, your circumstances, all kinds of things. So he, he's totally skeptical. Uh, he, he totally rejects those sorts of accounts of freedom, I think. Um, you know, there are a couple of places where he talks about how ludicrous those are, like in Beyond Good and Evil, and in Twilight of the Idols and so forth. But um, he also often talks about free spirits Um, and things like this. So he he calls some of his middle period works the free spirit works and um, sometimes praises a a certain kind of freedom. So in in the genealogy, he talks about the sovereign individual at one point who sounds kind of like a free individual. So I I think what he has in mind there is there is a tradition of thinking about freedom that associates freedom, not with these claims about past causes and so forth, Um, but instead with claims about the relationship that you bear to your values. So whether your values can in some sense be said to be freely chosen or whether you can sort of passively take them up from culture or from society and so forth. And I, I think if we understand freedom in that way, if we understand the free individual as the one who sort of reflects on his values and conducts genealogical investigations, of them and thinks about the relations they bear to health and flourishing and power and so forth. Um, I think Nietzsche sometimes does use the word freedom to pick out that kind of individual. And he certainly praises that kind of individual. So what Nietzsche himself does is he devotes his life to analyzing values and culture and uh, the pathologies that it produces. Um, If that's what we mean by freedom, that kind of critical engagement with your values then I think he he does value that, and in fact devotes his own life to to that.
0: And that's so that's interesting you brought that up because I I I would uh, I wonder what your thoughts are because he he makes several remarks about how it's better to have fewer virtues um, yeah. or fewer values, and that um, I believe he even says uh, you know the best is to have just one. <laughs> right something to that effect. Yeah. Um, do you do you have? Um, or why would it be that the case uh, in your view that having fewer values would make you more commensurate with will to power or, or is um, that where you, you think he's saying there?
1: Yeah, yeah, that seems right. I mean, so I think that Nietzsche um, thinks that it's more difficult to manifest high degrees of will to power if you have lots of disparate values and interests and so forth, it's it's easier um, to sort of stay committed to a value if there's just one. So you'll often see he really likes, he really praises the people who have a sort of multiplicity of values or interests and yet um, mm. manage to stay sort of in some sense unified and high achieving despite that. So, so Goethe is his usual example of that. He talks about Goethe being, as manifold as he is full, and you know, he, he Nietzsche really likes the way that he's not just a literary figure but a scientific figure, and so forth. He melds all these all these disparate um, interests and approaches. Um, but anyway, if, so if will to power, I guess I haven't yet talked about what I think will to power is. But um, for Nietzsche, there's some controversies about how you should interpret will to power. But I, I think the most basic thing that he means by it is that you manifest high degrees of will to power when you can successfully overcome challenges and obstacles to whatever ends you're pursuing. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but you actually choose ends and activities that generate great obstacles to overcome. So like the person who manifests the most power is the person who chooses a challenging task in part because they want to face and, and overcome those challenges. Right. But um th- so the basic idea going back to this point about one virtue versus multiple virtues, um, it's easier to do that with one thing than with many things. Um to right. worries that if if ordinary people try to, um, to do this with multiple diverse things, they're less likely to exhibit high degrees of power than if they, they focus on one thing. I mean, Nietzsche tends to be very elitist um, with many of his writings. And he basically thinks that most people aren't going to be capable of being right. like Goethe or like Nietzsche, where they have lots of diverse pursuits, but nonetheless manage to uh, surmount challenges in all of them. <laughs>
0: Right. Like a weaker man with the passions of Girto would just be torn asunder. Um, exactly. Something of that yeah. nature. That's, yeah, that's uh, yeah. 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 Um, so that's, that's interesting because uh, what comes to mind to me now is um, it, there seems to be, so, you know, when we hear uh, people talk about Nietzsche's great project, it's often like revaluation of values, which I think you could, you could talk about it in that sense, but it, it's during that free spirit period where he had this really interesting fascination to me. With um, there's even a passage in, in the gay mm. science where he talks about how maybe in the future man will have to have a dual brain to deal yeah. with our our uh, and then he also, um, another way of talking about it is uh, the the um, the the concept of an artistic Socrates that um, mm. you know, Socrates is this very rigorous uh, rhetorician, logician, but he um, doesn't practice the arts at all, or he, he, he'll, he, he gets a message from a God that he should practice the lyre, um, which he dutifully does just out of devotion to the deity before drinking his hemlock. Um, and so, um, the gay science, that whole, that even the name of that work, um, seems to be this attempt to capture, um, I, I guess, so where I'm going from this from what we we're talking about, uh, bringing it up to the society wide level um, from, you know, having multiple drives, it seems like he's recognized that we have competing drives within, you know, he's talking about Europe. We could say society more broadly, um, pulling us in different directions. Um, and it seems like a lot of his, um, what would you call it? His overarching project to me seems like trying, he's looking for some solution to harmonize those contradictions. Would you say that's accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that Right. I mean, I, I think in the gay science, he's especially interested in whether we can still affirm life or whether we're headed towards some kind of nihilistic state where we repudiate life or deny life or, or just become indifferent to it. And and part of it hinges on this point about whether we can um, successfully reconcile our drive toward truth, which I'll sometimes describe it as a drive towards science um, with other drugs, right? Be, because he basically worries in books like The Gay Science, as well as elsewhere, that um, we value truth so highly now that we sort of undermine the grounds for all of our other values. So, you know, we used to have these religious values, these, these cultural values, um, that when we look at their foundations, when we rationally assess them and, and give these critiques to them, they can no longer stand up. They, they just look ridiculous to us or, or ungrounded. Um, so he worries with the stuff about the death of God, about whether all of our values might collapse in that sort of way under the pressure of this drive toward truth, or or whether we can somehow um, preserve a set of values that would enable the affirmation of life while holding them to, to truth. So I think that dual brain passage that you quote, I think there he's worked. Do we have to actually sort of switch back and forth between the scientific or philosophical mode where we're really interested in truth and some other kind of mode where, we hold on to, to other values, or can we bring them together? Can we sort of reconcile them in some way?
0: Yeah, that's uh, and that is it is fascinating to me because it seems almost like it, one of those intractable intractable problems, um, which I mean, it almost moves beyond the scope of ethics. But it seems like a big theme in his work uh, is a reevaluation of all that's irrational of of the beast in mankind. You could say. Yeah and an acceptance of that, um, but, but with the recognition that it is this quote unquote Socratic approach to life that has sort of alienated us from that element of uh, mankind. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely seems, it seems like that's a clear cut example of two drives pulling you in two different directions and that being manifesting an underlying sickness, you could say. Yeah, um, that seems right. Um, so, okay. So we've talked about so with with free will. Then, so you would say that um, with Nietzsche's conception of free will, um, you think it's still? I guess I guess to put maybe to 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 maybe be a little bit contrarian here, um, I tend to read Nietzsche as more of like a fictionalist, um, and basically presenting our values as necessary fictions, things that we um, have some necessity to believe in, mm. but that they don't actually refer to anything in reality. Um, and so I've tended to reject the idea of like moral facts on that basis. Mm. Um, I am wondering what your reaction to that would be, whether you find that to be commensurate with your position or, um, whether that fictionalism presents
1: a problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it depends uh, on, what exactly fictionalism is claiming. So so one thing I would wanna deny is that fictionalism would apply to will to power. So I I, I think there's at least one value that Nietzsche gives a special status to, and that's power. Um, I think that's why he thinks he can assess all these other values Um, in terms of power. it's, It's because, power is, is grounded in the structure of agency in the way I was describing. So I think that one, I mean, it's not real in the sense that it's some like property of the universe or something like that. It, it's not like we discover the value of power in the same way that we discover gravity or, or something like that. It's rather that um, our biological nature is such that where we exhibit certain aims that we can't get rid of, uh, we always aim at power, no matter what else we may aim at. And given that biological fact, as we were talking about earlier, if you try to do certain things, you'll generate these internal tensions with, with power, Mm. you'll be conflicted or divided in a certain way. So I think that, um, that all he means by the idea that will to power has a special status that it's, it's sort of the most, it's the deepest, uh, value that we have in the sense that because of our biological nature it's inescapable for us whereas all the others they're variable you can change them i mean a lot of them they just arise due to like social and cultural facts um you know it's it's just a sort of historical accident nietzsche thinks that we value compassion or equality or democracy those could be changed in other cultures they have been changed um, so, so going to those values, I mean, you could, I think, regard them as fictionalist. What I, what I start to worry about with fictionalism is like what, um, what exactly is supposed to be meant by saying that the values mm-hmm. are fictional. So I definitely agree that Nietzsche does not think that those values are real in the same way that like physical properties of the universe and, so- and all that are real. They're just these like historical and social artifacts, um, but are they fictional? I don't know. Like, I I sometimes think that a helpful analogy is thinking about how other values operate in culture. So, like, think about the value that money has, like, you know, dollar bills and so forth. It's just like a a social and cultural development that, like, green slips of paper with U.S. presidents on them count as having a certain kind of value, right? Like, like there's nothing about the, the green paper that makes them valuable or anything like that. It's just that our society is organized and you know, we respond in such a way that those things have value. Um, but it's clearly made up and you know, it could be different. You can imagine treating something else as having monetary value or maybe in, if society were set up very, very differently, you could just not have monetary value like in a, in a more primitive society or something like that. Um, but like, given the way that things are set up, It's not just a fiction that like, if I have a hundred dollar bill that it's worth a hundred dollars, right? It it really does have that value. And I, I guess I think that that's how Nietzsche is thinking about other values as well. They're, I mean, they're sort of fictional if, if by that you mean that they're made up. Um, but they're made up in this very complicated way that involves this social and cultural history that involves the way that people respond to those things. So they're not made up in a way that like, I don't know, kids playing some imaginary game just about like, sure. the role, right? So, so yeah, so I, I guess I want to say like fictionalism, I think it is compatible with with the way I read Nietzsche, um, except on will to power. Will to power. If, yeah, if, if you read fictions as... Um, like, you know, to the extent that you'd want to say that like money has fictional value or something, right. um, you could think that other values have um, fictional value. I myself don't find it helpful to think of it in that way because I don't, I think it just gets so complicated to keep track of what exactly is supposed to be fictional about it. I think it's right. clear just to say, you know, just to deny that there are objective values and emphasize their relativity to culture and history and, and so forth.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And the money example I think is great because it's it's a, it's an example of something that is not, the value is not by simple agreement. Um, yeah. it's, the, it's a force that actually is bigger than um, any one person or group of people and behaves in way, I mean, the value of a currency can behave in ways that we can't even predict sometimes, um, yeah. even though it's completely made up. But that, so just to clarify the way I would use something like um, fictionalism, Um, I wouldn't mean things that are, um, believed arbitrarily or by simple agreement. Um, it, it would be things that, um, you know, uh, things I would, I would assume that we were talking about a sincerely held belief. Um, just, I guess it would just, uh, you know, maybe, maybe an interesting way of looking at it is you could say. From your medical meta-ethical perspective, will to power is not fictional, but all the different cultural reflections of will to power, like maybe would, the way Nietzsche talks about it in the Thousand and One Goals in Zarathustra, um, are as you say they're culturally relative, so they're made up to some extent, but they still have yeah. to um, they have to um, cor- they correspond to this principle of will to power. You would say, well, I guess maybe this opens up to a question. I know you've said, you've given a sort of a definition of will to power. What do you think, do you think it is a, bio, Some bio there's debate over what will to power is in terms of, is it biological? Is it metaphysical? Is it simply a constituent or is it simply this way of describing actions or is, do you, what in your opinion, is there something more there maybe?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think it, it's pretty clear from his notebooks that he doesn't publish that that Nietzsche wants it to be more than just psychological or, or biological yeah um, in his notebook he wants he, it
0: bad but yeah, i think he, he knows he i think he knows better than to publish that <laughs> I, I think
1: i mean i think that's basically it and you know who knows what would have happened if he'd stayed sane longer because he was working on this mm-hmm. like right around the time of his collapse but i mean in the notebooks you see a lot of passages where he seems to be trying to treat will to power as like a physical force or as a description of um, what it would be for something to be a force in general. So it looks like a metaphysical principle sometimes in the notebooks. Um, So sometimes he'll even put it up there with other physical principles or or say that, you know, gravity is a manifestation of will to power, uh, things Mm -hmm. like this, that force in general is just power. Um, That said, that stuff is mostly in the notebooks. there's a little bit like there's a passage in Beyond Good and Evil that can be read in that more metaphysical way too, but it's sort of tentative and hedged in various ways. So I think when the stuff that he publishes, I think will. You think is that
0: thirty nine or thirty six? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Or th- uh, he he poses a lot of it in the form of a question. Exactly. Um, that one, yeah.
1: Yeah. So there, it, it's not clear whether he's really endorsing it or whether he's just sort of putting it out there as a a possibility. Mm. I mean, I I basically think that he is hoping that he can show that it has some kind of metaphysical validity or he's at least toying around with that idea, but he never really satisfies himself with that yeah. as far as I can see. But he does seem pretty confident in treating it as a, a biological or a psychological principle that, um, yeah, I, I was talking about it in terms of human organisms, but he actually thinks it's just like life in general would involve the manifestations of will to power. It would take different forms. Right. But Nietzsche thinks that like trees uh manifest will to power in the sense that they contend with one another to to Would, grow higher and you know, block life. I think
0: he life. I think he's my theory on that is he's getting a lot of that from Schopenhauer. And I think will live. Um, okay. and because Schopenhauer talks about how even in the plant you can see the ceaseless striving of the will. But yeah. uh, I wonder if he if Nietzsche wanted to write something like will and representation. Um or had that that kind of secret desire to write something that was very metaphysical but he i think he knew deep down um especially in his later years when he's writing in twilight of idols i mistrust all systematizers yeah so it it almost makes it contradictory for him to go down that road but i think i think he wanted to but i want to ask though do you have an opinion on will to power though like aside from what you would interpret Nietzsche's um, view of it. I guess I'm kind of asking you an ontological question about like what you, but it just, if you have an opinion. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I actually think it's really insightful. I mean, I, so I don't know if I'm totally convinced that um, it's as omnipresent as Nietzsche thinks it is, right? Like, I mean, as I read him, he thinks that absolutely every action at least when it's um, described at a fairly general level so that you can trace about the drives that produce it, will be a manifestation of will to power. Because he thinks that anything, any drive-related activity will manifest will to power. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I think it's at least a, a really interesting idea. And I think it explains a lot of features of human psychology and behavior that otherwise might look really puzzling. I mean, if you think about it, there's, like, there's so much that we do where we seem to be picking activities, not because of what goals they lead to or what ends they produce, but just for the challenges that those activities provide. I, I think like games and sports and like hiking and competitions generally tend to have that structure. I, I think a lot of um, like what I value about philosophy has that structure. I mean, I, I just sort of like digging into a difficult text and trying to figure out what's going on there not so much for the end of it, for what comes after, but just for the, the sake of engaging with those challenges. So I actually think there's something really insightful about the claim that um, we're primarily motivated to seek and engage with challenges rather than to like attain some state of affairs that puts challenges to an end. Um, I think right. that's really insightful.
0: I I guess um, I didn't intend to take the conversation in this direction, but it just occurred to me maybe that that's why, because I think you kind of, tagged at the end of your response to me earlier, you were kind of wondering what's the, val- the value, what advantage are we getting from saying fictionalism? And I, yeah. I, thinking about it now, reflecting on it, I think the way I tend to think about it is that there's like a really conscious anthropocentrism in Nietzsche's like metaphysical thought um, of basically um, sort of, uh, you know, there's that famous passage, how the true world finally became a fable and Twilight of Idols, basically saying, forget about the noumenon. Uh, we live in this human phenomenal world. That's what's relevant. So let's talk about that um, is how I read it, that he's very, um, very willing to just say, yeah, this is a human reality. That's the reality we experience. Um, and so I think you could read, if I was thinking about the matter like it from like a, a trying to be objective or dispassionate about it, I would say well, will to power is probably just a psychological principle about humans. And I don't know if I really have the, like, I, I I don't know if I have the epistemic bravery to apply that to and all animals and plants and crystals and, you know, the orbit of the planets, but then, so then what is power will to power become? Right. And that's where I see that maybe the value of talking about it in terms of fictionalism is that Nietzsche is aware of, um, like uh, there's another line in Human Ulti Human where he says, we see by means of our human head and can't cut it off, but one wonders what would remain if it had been cut off and uh, sort of raising the question. I think he's aware that the world that we live in for whatever the world might as such might be is this world contingent on humanity. And so I think he's willing to Entertain ideas like will to power as a world principle that he might be aware on some deep level is just he doesn't actually have the the, the means of proving this about the whole world. Um. So that's my yeah. case for for talking about fictionalism. I guess I don't know.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I guess the the only thing I worry about, like the, the reason why I I like this interpretation of will to power that treats this as a constitutive feature of agency, is because he seems to treat it very differently than he treats other values. Um, So, I mean, you could imagine somebody reading Nietzsche and imagine you're convinced by his argument that, I don't know, democracy conflicts with power or something like that. Um, Why not choose democracy instead of power? Like, why does the fact that um, something conflicts with power entail that you should choose power and get rid of the other thing rather than choosing the other thing and getting rid of power? Um, If all values are fictional, then it seems like either response is equally legitimate. Um, but if there's one value power that has a special status, then Nietzsche would have a way of saying that you know, conflicts with power actually matter. When you find a conflict with power, the thing to do is to um, try to get rid of the the thing generating the conflict rather than getting rid of power. So that's what sort of um, right. attracts me to the uh, the more uh, non-fiction. And that's, that's, that's where
0: I, my, uh... I've, (laughs) my, my bad boy streak says, well, the proof will be in the pudding and you go your, your way with where you don't acknowledge power and the other people can, and we'll see what happens, you know, and um,
1: and that's a legitimate, I mean, I think that's a legitimate interpretation of Nietzsche. It does sometimes seem like he's doing that. Um, So, I, I mean, I think you could read him in that way where he's saying, you know, some people do this, other people do that. And then look at what the forms of life are like when you do this one thing or when you do that right. other thing. I mean, parts of the genealogy sound that way when he's like mm-hmm. contrasting ancient Greek culture and making it look very vibrant and flourishing and then talking about medieval Christianity, it looks miserable and conflicted. <laughs> so it could be that sort of thing. Um, but I guess I think there are also all of these moments in Nietzsche's text where he's presenting power and health and life as something to has a different kind of value than its opposite. Uh, like in the antichrist he, he just feels like
0: a true discovery for him rather than Yeah. Uh,
1: like, I mean that's him. how I read okay. it. Yeah, yeah like in in um antichrist passage too he just says what's good and then he says power the will to power. Um <laughs> what's bad the the undermining of those things. So especially in the late text, there's just a lot of statements uh, the genealogy has a bunch of stuff about how you know, is life flourishing or is it declining? And the suggestion seems to be that if it's declining, get rid of it, you know, stop that, try to flourish. Uh, And then that's cashed out in terms of power. So, you know, it's moments like that where it looks to me like it's more than just um, sketching different forms of life and thinking about, you know, which one we prefer or whatever.
0: Yeah, however however much people might say Nietzsche is uh, vague or, or overly poetic, very few philosophers will just come out and say, what's good? here it is in two sentences um, and he has those uh, those moments so um i guess just a a couple more questions before we we wrap it up um i I guess i just wanted to ask you um uh in in general what would you consider this is going to get very very broad but what would you consider the state of philosophy to be in 2021 as a discipline in the academy um in the popular consciousness
1: I guess I'm, I'm conflicted about it. So I, I mean, I think in certain respects there have been some improvements. So the analytic continental divide that we mentioned earlier on at the beginning, I think the collapse of that has led to a lot of incredibly interesting work. So there's so much good work on Nietzsche um, and other figures in the, who were formerly in the continental tradition. I think that's flourishing. That's really interesting. Um, I'm, i am less impressed with a lot of what's popular within non-historical like contemporary moral philosophy. I mean there's a lot of uncritical reliance on our intuitions. There's a lot of taking for granted of contemporary values um not a lot of inquisitiveness about why we're inclined to describe certain things as valuable. there's too much taking for granted of of dominant values. So I, I don't like that. I, I also think um, I mean, a big problem for philosophy is that it's gotten increasingly specialized and just seems to get like more and more specialized as time goes on. So, um, I mean, if you think about somebody like Nietzsche, he's trying to address these deep questions about culture, society, psychology, agency value, all these like interconnected things. Um, Most philosophers nowadays pick like some tiny issue, become experts on that tiny issue but um, don't connect it to these broader and more foundational questions. Um, part of that's just because, you know, to, to be a professor and to get tenure and stuff, you have to publish and to publish, you have to pick these small bits usually and just like work on the small bits. So I, I think these pressures toward increasing specialization can make it harder to do good work. Um, that said, there are um, like a handful of people doing really fascinating, deep, insightful work. So when I, I don't know, I guess like when I look at philosophy or really any academic discipline, I think that um, most of it is horrible, but some of it is really, really good. do you have
0: anyone you'd like to recommend?
1: um, I guess it depends on what issues people are interested in. Like I I really like Richard Moran's work on self-knowledge, for example, I Richard Moran and, and Matt Boyle, if you're interested in self-knowledge, I think they're doing fascinating, really insightful work in those areas. Um, in moral philosophy, although I disagree with her theory, I, I think Chris Korsgaard has, um, especially her earlier books on on Kantian ethics are approaching those ethical questions in a really insightful and revolutionary way. Um, Michael Thompson is a philosopher who I I also think is developing a really fascinating project in, in ethics um, that um, can be hard to get into, but um, very rewarding if you do. So, I I mean, those would be some people who are doing, I mean, there's also a lot of like younger professors who are um, doing really interesting stuff. So um, there's a lot of people who I think uh, in the future will be, prominent um, at least within the philosophical community and and doing this more foundational work
0: that's great to hear uh so do you what how would you contrast or um has the internet been a blessing or a curse or um (laughs) the wide dissemination of people talking about philosophy and anyone being entering into the conversation what how do you see the effects of
1: that i mean i i think it's great in in one way so i mean i think it's Wonderful that there are programs like this one where uh, people talk about Nietzsche, and you know you have a, a large audience of people who otherwise might not have access to that sort of resource, and um, and just generally, I think there's been a, a real proliferation of popular philosophy books and so on. Um, a, a lot of them, I think, aren't aren't all that great, but but I, I think that um, the fact that there's such a, an appetite for them, um, I think, is sparked by by some of these uh, internet sites and so forth. So I, I think it's good in that way. I mean, I can't imagine how um, how it could really be bad for more people to be interested in philosophy. Right. I, I think that becoming more critical about things that we would otherwise take for granted is really important and the philosophy helps us to do that.
0: Yeah, well, and I, th- I think about it in terms of uh, music where, you know, mm. um, uh, like I'm, you know, uh, musician, part of a heavy metal community, people will look down at, on the popular groups and the stuff on the radio, uh, which is of lower quality. But a lot of the times, it's like, hey, that's what gets people into this this subgenre. It doesn't have to be yeah. it doesn't have to be perfect to hook somebody in and give them that little that little glimmer or that little inkling, that insight, that um, that question that starts you know burning mm-hmm. in their mind when they first start in encountering philosophy. Um, and I guess with that, I, I, I have one more question for you and, and this is a, a difficult one, but um, what what is the meaning of philosophy or how, what, how would you define philosophy if uh, you had to come up with one?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I suppose I think that good philosophy, the, the kind of philosophy that people like Nietzsche are doing is philosophy that, it, it's an approach that tries to think critically about some of the deepest problems of human existence. So Nietzsche, for example, wants to figure out how we should relate to culture, how we should relate to our values, what stance we should take toward ourselves, how we should understand ourselves and our conscious experience. Um, I think real philosophy is the pursuit of those existential questions in a critical and reflective way, a way that, tries to get past contemporary prejudices and contemporary assumptions and um, just address these questions in a new way.
0: Awesome. That is a, a, as good a definition as any, I still have not found the final definition. I've heard some really good ones over the years from, uh, you know, uh, Hans-Jörg Muller has one. He says philosophy is to critique religion. Uh, Who else? Uh, Slavoj Zizek says it's a, Hermeneutical uh, series of questions, but um, I always I, I I've decided I'm going to make that a habit of asking all the guests what they think to give a yeah. definition, because I think everyone gives a different one, and I usually just say, well, it means philosophia, love of wisdom. So that's kind of a punt, but you know, I'll yeah. keep it. Well, um, Professor Katsafanas, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Um, before you go, uh, where can people find your books? Um, or do you have a, anything you'd like to plug?
1: Um, yeah, so you can check out my website. It's, um, if you just search for Paul Katzenfennus, you'll, you'll find it. And I list all my publications there. You can download my papers from there. There are links to my books. Um, I do have a book that'll be coming out in about, probably not for about a year. Actually, I'm sort of finishing up now, but the publishing process takes some time. But it's on um the sort of moral psychology of extremism and fanaticism. It's drawn on some Nietzschean ideas to explore those topics. And I found it really interesting to work on that. So um, that book, you'll find some information on that on my website as well. Um, That sounds
0: fascinating. I cannot wait for that. Um, And maybe uh, if we're still going, I'd love to talk to you when it comes out.
1: Sure. That'd be great.
0: Alrighty. Well, uh, thank you very much and, uh, goodbye everybody. Uh, signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreoncom slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.